Hey everybody, welcome to the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fisher. This month we are talking to Perry Mothra of Relentless Leadership. Why does he call it relentless? Because Perry believes you are never finished being a leader. You've got to constantly be pursuing it and improving yourself in order to take people to the next level. One of the greatest things that caught me by surprise with this conversation is Perry talks everybody, if possible, out of being a leader. Why does he do that? I guess you're just going to have to listen and find out. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Mr. Perry Moffman. So were you always interested in, in doing things with leadership? I have been. Uh, it started uh, a long time ago. And really, I didn't realize it until after the fact, but it had always been my area of focus. And because it was always in kind of my, my skill set, my medium was always people. So you preferred the people aspect of everything you were doing? I did. And that's why I moved, I think, easily from industry to industry. It, it never really mattered what business I was in or what industry mm -hmm. I was in. I didn't really have a, I was kind of agnostic as far as that was concerned. I was more focused on the people that were involved and the nuance of behavior and providing people with an opportunity to be successful. Cool. Let me back up just a second and ask, leadership is so nebulous and you hear a lot of people claiming to be leadership gurus or or being experts in leadership. Can you define leadership for me succinctly? The very base definition for me is influence. So leadership oh. is influence. So that's what I use with most people because anybody can do it. Nobody can't influence somebody. John Wooden, uh, so I'm a big fan of you know Wooden, of course. He said leadership is love. That was his, his way of looking at it. And I think that one of my, my favorite all-time definition of leadership is from David Foster Wallace. And he said, real leaders are people who help us overcome the limitations of our own individual laziness and selfishness, weakness, and fear, and get us to do better and harder things than we could get ourselves to do on our own. Those are all great definitions. Yeah. I'm going to key off the first one. Are you a John Maxwell guy? Yes. From okay. way back. From way back. Yeah. So I remember reading... Developing the leaders, the leader within you and the leaders around you were some of the first books I'd ever read on leadership mm -hmm. 20 yeah. years ago at this point. Um, I've recently started down the line of being certified through his organization to, to teach some of his materials. I've enjoyed a lot of it, getting into the inside of the business and finding out what it's all about. The second one, I think, goes hand in hand because we, we hear a lot nowadays about servant leadership. Now, I used to hear a lot of that because I'm a church guy. Mm -hmm. And people always talk about pastors who should be servant leaders. Do you find that that's making kind of a bigger foray into the, the more corporate space nowadays? We hear a lot about it now because of the, the, the a, uh, aspect of humility. And okay. I think that there's a real focus on putting others first, but I think that it's really, there's also kind of a danger in that because people can take that too far and think that, well, everybody comes before me as a leader. And mm. while I think that in, in theory, that's good in the application of that, it can be dangerous for the individual because you can't, you can't pour from an empty cup. And so okay. you have to be really careful. I, I tell people that I work with that it's really, it's paradoxical, but you have to put yourself first as far as your health and as far as care for you so that you can care for other people. It's my favorite analogy is just, it's, it's like when you're on the airplane and they say, if the oxygen mask drops and you're with somebody who needs help, you put your oxygen mask on first. Right. And Otherwise so, you both pass out. Right. Exactly. And so I think that to me, that's the, the easiest way to compare it to leadership is I think we have a tendency to, uh, for people, if I'm the leader, then I have to do the most and I have to mm -hmm. put everybody before me. And, and while I think that's, I think that works theoretically, I think that from a practical standpoint, there has to be some balance. Yeah. And how do you help people strike that balance? Well, part of it is just focusing on 
balancing the the effort. What I do with relentless leadership, there's a couple components. There's 14 tenets, I call them. And a couple of them are the things that you have to do for yourself. You're never finished for one thing and leading yourself first. And I think you really have to be aware of that. And you also have to be aware. Another big thing is your emotional triggers, you know, mm -hmm. understanding how you're triggered emotionally, because that's what takes the most energy out of you. And I see it on a daily basis with the folks I work with, the emotional contagion that happens, and then you get drained really quickly and you have nothing left now. So your, your whole ability to manage yourself kind of flies out the window. All right, so there's a few things that I, I'd already had written down that I want to touch on there. So, and it's a perfect opportunity to ask, why relentless leadership? Why do you call it that? Why do you go that direction? A couple of years ago, I was doing some branding exercises for myself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came out of it, we, you know, I was working with somebody here locally and we came out with relentless was one of the words that came out when I talked to people that described my personal approach. And then it took me a couple of years to circle back around to it. And the real reason I selected it is because it is my opinion that you're never finished mm. as a leader. You're never finished and you're never done developing. And so for me, the relentless piece was just easy it made perfect sense to me because the tagline is you're done when you're dead. Right. And that's a good time to think about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you deal with a lot of people in the, in the corporate world. I know you work with a lot of CEO peer groups through Vistage. What do you think is the biggest piece of leadership people miss in all of their training? Okay. So there's a couple things with that question. One is the pointing out the difference between training and development because I think the biggest challenge I see currently and the one I point out to most people is we're trying to dumb down leadership. We're trying to make it something that we can quote unquote train somebody on. We, mm -hmm. we want it. Most, most, most people that own organizations want a checklist. They want something yeah. that they can say, okay, do this stuff and you'll be a leader and because it's, it's efficient. Right. And I tell people, well, first of all, leadership should never be efficient. It's not about being efficient and we have to worry. It's more development than it is training because development is, is comes from the inside out where training is from the outside in. And that's really the biggest challenge because I can, if I train somebody, I can watch them and ensure they're doing what I train them to do. I can watch them do the task and go, okay, you did what I told you to do. Whereas with leadership, it's experiential and it's developmental. The core of this is, is people have to internalize what they're learning from a leadership perspective and then figure out how they're going to externalize it. And uh, several different people can be really effective at being leaders, but it looks completely different. And I think that's a great point because you have to lead within your personality and within your skill set and whatever that is, your skill set and mine may be completely different. Our personalities may be different, but that doesn't mean we both can't be great leaders, especially when we're talking about the servant leadership model and where it's simply loving people well and taking care of them. It's oftentimes people say, if you don't fit this mold, this personality and look just like me and act like me, hmm. then you're probably not going to be able to be an effective leader. Well, and I think that's the challenge for people because the word everybody likes to use now is authentic. Like uh -huh. we, we like authenticity, but we have to be very careful because if we're working with somebody to become a leader, and I think it was uh, Warren Bennis said, the object is not to become a leader. It's to become yourself we have to make that person the best person they can be, not a replica of us. And so we have to allow them that ability to execute differently, to verbalize things differently, to uh, talk to people in a different manner. As long as they're getting the same result, 
and, and that's the real challenge because we, when we quote unquote train somebody, they're going to replicate what we do. Whereas in leadership development, it's working with somebody to come up with their own version of that thing. How do you help people recognize what that is in other people and not have them emulate you or whoever is doing the, the leadership development? I find so it's, I th- it, if people don't look like me or act like me, I sometimes have to step back and examine that. And it, there's always that weird conflict of, no, do it this way. But that's just my way and it may not work for you. The end of it has to be a result, right? I, I tell people, and, and some folks may not like this, I say that leadership is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. We like to set it on a podium and say we should all aspire. To, you know, leadership is something that is an end in itself, and it really isn't, in my opinion. It's a means to an end. So it doesn't matter how anybody gets there. What matters is are you getting the result you're looking for? Because it has to happen in context. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Again, when I work with folks, I, I typically work with leadership teams. I don't spend a lot of time working individually with folks. I work with a team because what I want them to do is then have some mutual accountability with what we're talking about so that when they go out and practice, they have their peers to help them. And then when we come back and talk about how did we try to execute these things and then what was the result and would we do it differently next time? Because it is is definitely a process and not an event. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. If you're not examining what you're doing and whether it worked or not or how you could do it more effectively or how you could have been a better leader in any given situation, you're not going to improve. You're really not going to be leading. You're going to be to your point, trying to check off a checklist. Yeah, it's, it's really a, it really becomes an evolution, right? That's why I say relentless because it, it's never finished and you're never done developing as that leader. And so you have to evaluate when you do something to your point, it may have. And the other thing is, is account for luck. Like just because it worked out right, doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> you have to account for the fact that maybe you just got lucky that time. So if you're constantly evaluating and thinking, you know, and the other point of that is, is that organizations throughout the time that you're with them may need a different style of leadership depending on what's going on. So you always have to ask yourself, am I the, am I the leader my organization or my people need today? Because six months from now, they may need something different. And if you're not constantly evolving and evaluating that, then, you know, you can't, you can never be static. No, I, I, I always tie it back to parenting. Like my kids need a different father, depending on what's going on. You know, when they were little and they scraped their knee, they needed a little more sympathetic dad. You know, if they're acting foolish now, they need dad to step in and go knock it off. And sometimes individuals, organizations, they all need that different person. If you can't flex to care for those people the way they need cared for and lead them to help them grow in the way they specifically need that help, you're not leading, you're walking, but no one's following you. Right. And, and there's a, there's a definition, the, one of the best definitions of a leader is someone who has followers. Right. So, you know, if you're way out in front, nobody's behind you to your point, then guess what? You're not leading. Right. Yeah. I think Maxwell says you're just taking a walk if no one's <laughs> right. following you. Exactly. I remember what I was going to talk about earlier. Now, some of the things you were talking about really, I think, tie into EQ really well, emotional, mm-hmm. emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I heard, heard you originally on the spirit of EQ. And I think you talked a little bit of those sorts of things, but I'd like to touch on it now because I, think that's becoming, I don't know, say the next big thing. I don't think it's a cliche or a trend. I think it's really important that as individuals, we're learning to grow in our, inte- our emotional intelligence. To your point, what triggers me? How can I, why does it trigger me? And how can I adjust to that so I don't let it drain all of my energy? Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how emotional intelligence plays into leadership from that perspective? Well, first of all, I agree with you. And most of the things you read nowadays, if you're looking at, you know, when people talk about the three to five traits that are going to be required required for leaders in the future, 
EQ is always on that list. And I, I had this conversation with a young leader today because they said, well, I, I don't want to have sympathy for those people. I'm not saying you should feel what they feel, but I understand their feelings. You know, yeah. I give them the right to have those feelings. And I think that's the biggest thing. And then you move to compassion, which is understanding someone else's situation in a way that helps you help them. Because if I, back to the point earlier about making people into us, if I'm constantly evaluating somebody else against my standard, I'm doing them a disservice. They're not me. Right. And, and we have to have that recognition. And I think overall as a society, we lack compassion to a great extent. We're the pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, work harder. And, you know, everybody's got, everybody's even and everybody can succeed. And while we'd like to believe that, that is in fact not true. And, and so we have to have compassion for people as a leader. And you have to balance that because you certainly don't want to feel sympathy for people and allow them to do things and not live up to their potential. But at the same time, you have to understand what their capacity is and how hard you can push them. Because just like a rubber band, you don't, you don't take a rubber band and grab it and just stretch it twice its size or it'll snap. You know, right. you have to, you have to pull out a little till you feel that tension and then hold it and then let it relax a little bit and then come back out. Because if you want something to go beyond where it was first stretched, it, it takes time and in a, in a nuanced touch, but I am going to recognize and, and, and allow them to have that emotion because it's their emotion and it's validated. Yes. I, I can't, I should not, I should never invalidate somebody's emotion. Like you shouldn't be upset about that. That's mm-hmm. a lack of compassion. Uh, I was perusing your website and doing my research for this. Um, I really loved what you had to say. It's, it's right in the line of some of the things we were talking about today. Uh, we, we are not going to get into anything political. And you, you prefaced that in the beginning of this article <laughs> about the leadership crisis. And it seems to tie into this difference. I come from a father who was 50 years old when I was born. And so I always feel like I'm older than I really am. <laughs> and a lot of the leadership I learned was was more blue collar stuff. And it was really the just do as you're told the authoritarian leadership, you've got to be tough, separate yourself from your people. What you're discussing in this article is really more that servant leadership of building people up. Uh, and I think you may have touched on all of it, but if not, I just want to recommend people go out. I will link it in the show notes. Is there anything else from that article other than the political stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> that you might want to touch on that, we've, that we haven't hit so far? I think that the biggest piece of it, and, to, and I really want to echo something you just said, is I have a, a fundamental belief and, and I share this with everybody that I work with. In every interaction, we have a choice. We either build up or we tear down. Mm. I'm not a fan of binary choices in most situations, but I do believe in that. In every instance, there is no middle ground. We don't, we don't stay static. So when we're interacting with somebody, we have a choice. And great leaders don't build up all the time. We just try to be conscious of it and build up more than we tear down. Our natural state, unfortunately, is leaders spend a lot of time looking at what's wrong instead of right. And it just is a function of what we do because we're always trying to improve. And so, but, but that can be very damaging to people that, that work for us. And so we have to be cognizant that we have to understand and point out what's right if we want to even have a chance and, and the energy and the focus to address what's wrong. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And again, I'm going to tie it back to parenting. If you're always telling your kids everything they're doing wrong, they're going to need a lot of therapy later in life. Um, yeah. they're, they're just going to always be seeking your approval and never getting it. And we have to remember that. Oh, nothing, and I don't want to say we should, we should be patronizing to the people who are under our care. 
but we should think about them in such ways that we would care for them just as if they were our children, adult children. So, so we're not thinking of them as, as being oh, toddlers or something. I, I, can, um, I can tell you that most of what I learned about leadership, I learned from being a parent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, over the period of, you know, my kids are all in their 20s now, but, but understanding the impact you have on somebody and, and different, different approaches that you take with people over time uh, is, is, uh, is an amazing thing to experience. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated you talking about in, in the other podcast I listened to was you talking about it taking time. That a weekend workshop, a one-time mm-hmm. meeting, it might whet your appetite, but it's never going to build the type of person that a leader is looking to build because it takes time to to take on to take on that responsibility. And and the fact that you said you'd turn people away, uh, what did you what was the phrase you used? The the emotional investment or people want to write a check to, to satisfy their emotions and make them think they're doing something. Well, it's emotional Novocaine. That's what it was. That was yeah. It. Yeah. It's emotional Novocaine. And, and I think that it's very important because I view leadership development and, and there's a, there's a, uh, a concept out there called deliberate practice. And so I, I really believe in that because it's one of the components of it is high quality feedback. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, you have to have specific goals and then you have to, it's just like training. You have to go out and do the thing. And then somebody's there with you going, okay, here's what you did. Well, here's what you didn't do. Well, here's what you got to try next time. And you can't do that in a one or two day workshop. You can come away very excited, very motivated, have a lot of information and then go right back to work. And that stuff goes on a shelf. And so most of the folks I work with, I work with over the course of sometimes longer than 12 to 18 months. And my, the concept is that's why I want the leadership team together because I'm going to pass on all of this information to them as a unit. And then eventually they'll become self-sustaining as a unit. They, and then they pick it up and go from there. Because they're holding each other accountable and, and right, helping each right. other. And I'm giving them a common language. I, part of what I'm doing is providing them with a common language to use. That's very, I guess for lack of a better term, simple. It's mm-hmm. nothing complex. I don't believe leadership is, but it's being able to have a shared vocabulary, I think is important um, and, and make it easy for people. Yeah. And like so many things, you just can't get better by reading books and thinking about it. You have to actually do it and practice and preferably get feedback. I'm a longtime member of Toastmasters International. One of the big things about Toastmasters is every speech you give, you're getting feedback directed towards you, exactly what you did and didn't do, things that can help you along the way. And I wish there was some opportunity there for that in a leadership model, but you can't really lead people in a meeting. So you'd have to get that in the organization that you're in where they can watch you every day, day in and day out. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I have clients who will ask me to come to a meeting they're having and sit as an observer and then give them feedback after the meeting. Oh, well, that'd be very helpful. And I think that what's important is the, the effort. And, and you're right. You can't, nobody's going to follow you around watching you in interactions during the day. And that's why I think journaling is very important for somebody that's trying to work on their leadership. At the end of the day, I tell people, just ask yourself these three questions, what went well, what didn't go well, and what would I do differently? You know, and, and just having that, that get that mechanism involved to where I'm routinely asking myself after an interaction, did that go as well as I wanted it to? And if it didn't, what could I have done differently? But and the real challenge here is, is that, and I tell people this, my term is uh, clunky. Like when you try something new, it <laughs> feels clunky, right? So as a leader, if, I'm, if I've got a way of doing things and I want to try something different, it's really awkward the first 
10 times I do it. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a, there's a definitive risk involved in that effort. And so what we have to do is be able to overcome our, um, change our risk tolerance and be willing to look stupid because it'll happen. Right. And so for me, I was lucky enough to not be challenged with worry, being worried about looking stupid. Like I'll, I'll walk into a meeting and just start talking and, and I'll, I'll acknowledge right away if something goes wrong. Right. I, I've been slowly breaking myself of that habit. I, I come from that. Leaders aren't allowed to be wrong in front of their people. Obviously that ruins their credibility. Because being a contractor consultant has helped me break that because I come into organizations all the time where I don't know the lingo. I don't know the vocabulary and every meeting. I'm sorry. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And, Sometimes you just out of habit do it because you don't want to assume and then like ASAP as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That one I knew. But, and you're, eventually you're going to look stupid. But the, what I find out is as I'm taking notes and, and writing this down, I'll have people come up to me and go, when you're done with that document, can you send it over? Cause I don't know half of these things and I've been here for three years, but even if they what? don't, I'm okay to look stupid in, in the short term. Cause I don't want to be stupid in the long term and wait a year and a half or two years and, and not have ever asked the question or gotten any better. Well, there's a very interesting underlying theme with what you just talked about, which is that leaders are always supposed to know, and Mm. that's damaging. We're trained, we're conditioned, we're made to think that leaders have all the answers. And that's, again, damaging to people because it puts us in a bad position because we don't and we shouldn't know all the answers, but we feel compelled to, and then we feel compelled to get upset or angry if somebody asks us something we don't know because we feel like we've been found out. Mm. And so there's a lot that just that in and of itself, you could unpack and talk about for 30 minutes because most people that's their stance is I'm the leader. I'm all knowing I should know everything. Um, so I'm going to defend if I don't. Yeah. And yep. that that's a, that's a problem. It is because there's, I think we were talking about before we started recording, there's too much information in the world to know everything. I'm not embarrassed if you, if you name a leader that I've never heard of tonight, I'm supposed to know about it. Okay. I've never read that book. I've never heard of that guy. I can name a hundred other people that I have read, but I don't know that one. And that's okay. If it's a good one, tell me, I'll read it. We'll see what's going on. One of my tenets in relentless leadership is failure is progress. And I love the acronym fail first attempt in learning. Yes. And, and so, you know, if you, if you redefine things for yourself, you find, you find opportunity where you didn't before. And it also frees the people that you're, that you're serving because now they're going to watch you. You know, one of my favorite sayings is from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is your actions thunder so loudly. I cannot hear what you say. And so I tell all the leaders I work with, it doesn't matter what you're telling people. What matters is what you're doing you know, how you're behaving because they're all watching you very closely. In fact, I could go talk to your folks, anybody, and they know when you're having a bad day before you know you're having a bad day because <laughs> they're, they're acutely aware of it. Yes. Yep. I think you were, you're heading that direction. If as leaders, we're okay to say, I don't know, we're okay to walk that road. It frees our people to, to be able to, Oh, it is okay to not know something. I don't have to get defensive if I don't know either, or even, when he's, people assume that when you're asking the question, you're trying to trap them. If I've been in those kind of cultures where if you ask me a question and I don't know, I'm going to go, he knows, he knows I don't know that. He's trying to get me in trouble in front of the boss. 
but if there is, if there's a spirit and a, an, an environment of being okay to say, I don't know, but I'll find out, then everyone can, can be free to, to learn and to grow without, without that fear of what's going on. Yeah. There's a, uh, Edgar Schein wrote a book called humble inquiry. It's a real small little paperback book. And, and I love his definition of humble inquiry is the act of accessing your own ignorance. That's really good. And he said, because his point in there is very rarely do we ask questions we don't know the answer to. And to your point, it can be damaging in an organization. It can, it can hurt people. Um, I sat, I sat with a new leader. It was, uh, so I sat, I was sitting with the CEO. He had just hired a COO and they'd been there. I don't know about a month or so. And they were telling me this interaction they had with one of the, one of the other leaders in the organization. And he said something had happened. So he was, he was asking her a question. He already knew the answer to, to see how she would answer it. And so I let him explain that to me. And I said, I looked at him and said, so you were baiting her. And he said, what do you mean? I go, you were baiting her. You, you were testing her. So how do you think when that all transpired, what level of trust does she have in you now? And he said, well, no, that's not what I was doing. And I said, well, I, I, I respectfully disagree, but it is what you were doing. You're, you were testing her. And he said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, well then tell me how she feels about that now. Tell me how, does she trust you? And he said, he just looked at me and he said, probably not. And I said, okay, I, I'm not judging you. I'm, I just want to point out that that's what happened in that interaction. And I think that sometimes we, we focus more on being right than we do being successful. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think what I, either one of the tenants or one of the things you talk about in your article is that long-term thinking. I think it was in the article about leadership, the leadership mm -hmm. gap where people, people are thinking short-term wins and not long-term successes. And that causes us to make the wrong decisions because we've got our incentives backwards. Hmm. And so his time with her in that short period, it was a short-term victory. He may have gotten what he wanted out of that little interaction where he learned a little bit about her, but long-term he may have started to poison the relationship because if she recognizes what's happening, the trust has been ruined and it's going to take some time to rebuild that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he wasn't building up. He certainly wasn't building anybody up in that transaction. He right. was tearing down. Right. So if he wanted to learn, learn the same piece of information, what would you recommend you do instead? One of the tenets of what I do is called speak your heart. And I think that if people would just do that, which is if you thought the person did something wrong, then just ask them an honest question. Okay. Just, just be honest with them. Just say, and here's what I, here's the, the way I tell people to do it. We naturally really quickly when we hear us, when we're working with people and somebody does something absent them telling us, we make up the story in our head as to why they did it. I mean, sure. we do it with everybody, we do it with our spouse, with our kids, with our friends, everybody. So we may, we're actively, our, our brain is actively making up stories to fill in blanks. So my recommendation when something like that happens is to go to the person and say, okay, here's what I heard. So I need you to tell me what happened and why you did what you did. Because unless I know that, that here's the story I'm making up in my head as to why you did it. I'm not sure that's true. So can you share with me what happened so that I'm not believing the story I made up in my head? You mean we can have those kind of open and honest conversations in the workplace? <laughs> uh, well, we, we can, but we don't often. And, and we, because we're, we're always protecting. Yeah. I gotta be honest. It took, took my wife and I seven years to have those kind of conversations between each other. And well, I knew I was, I knew I was committed to her for the rest of my life. I don't have to deal with these people forever. 
Right. But we're, we're fragile. Sure. And, and yeah. it is, it is emotionally freeing to do that. And that's, that's what I build my practice on is, is being able to ask people those questions and, and being able to engender that level of trust where I tell people, I, I don't have an agenda here, right? I'm here because you asked me to be here. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to ask you things that are going to be uncomfortable, but I'm, I want you to understand I'm only asking them because you've asked me to help you. And so we have to have that level of trust and we have to be able to get into those things that are going to be scary because we are, we're fragile. And, and I got to be honest with you, I know lots of leaders and most of them are really fragile. I don't know how else to say it. Is there anything else you want to have the opportunity to discuss? Because we're coming up on a half an hour here. I think we could go for a lot longer, but I'd be respectful of everyone's time. No, I don't think so. It's been a, it's a great conversation. I think just to, I think the biggest thing is if people want to pursue leadership and one of the things I always tell everybody is the first thing I try to do is talk people out of it. (laughs) Now that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, because it's, it's thankless. Like 90% of the time it's, it's horrifically draining and um, tiresome and you repeat yourself a lot and you have all of the blame for everything you've already brought it up, but the, the best example is being a parent, right? So mm-hmm. it, it is, it is not fun. Now, the thing is the 10% of the time that it, that it is good, it is so good that it makes up for the other 90%. And so I tell people, I'm like, you have to be really clear as to why you want to be a leader because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you emotionally. It's going to cost you psychologically. It's going to cost you physically. And so you, do a good job of trying to talk them out of it? Or do a lot of people say, no, no, I've got it. And then they regret it later. No, the people I work with, I actually make a sign a doc. I make them sign a document <laughs> as to why they're doing it. And then who they're doing it for. Okay. Why do they want to be a better leader? Who, who in their world are they going to serve better by going, putting themselves through this effort? Because there has to be a worthy cause on the other side. And, and all I'm, and I, and I'll, I'll work with anybody. I just want to make sure that, we're all cognizant on the front end of the effort it's going to take to do what they say they want to do. I think that that's great. We should all count the cost of the things that we're going through. Otherwise we find ourselves getting started and realizing it's too hard. And if you don't have a good solid, why you give up? Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And it's, and it's easy to get worn down and and you got to find people that can support you through it. And you got to find a way to energize yourself on a daily basis. Because again, you can't, we don't will our cars to keep going when they're out of gas, but we'll keep driving ourselves. That's a good analogy. I mean, everybody knows you need to do some maintenance on your car, but very rarely do we think about doing maintenance on ourselves, whether it's you know, spiritual, physical. I mean, a lot of people will work out, but it's more like to relieve the stress than it is to be proactive, I guess. Well, and, you, and, that, and working out's great, but you have to, that emotional energy is where you, you got to find it. Mm-hmm. You got to find what does that for you. Let me close with the question I ask everybody. Uh, what are you doing today to be better tomorrow? I stopped reading as much. Now that's interesting <laughs> because most people tell me about all the books that they're reading. So explain that. Well, I was one of those people and I've got a stack right over here to my left. And I would go through typically in, year, in the last five years, I probably average about two or three books a month. And I finally realized that quantity was not helping me. And so what I've done for myself this year is, first of all, I'm not going to read anything that was written in the last hundred years. 
this year for me is going to be the year of existential philosophers. So I'm going to go back and read a lot of older philosophy because I think conceptually it takes us to a different place and all of the principles still apply. That's just me personally. But I think that taking a book, like one of my groups, I'm having them read one book and we're going to read the book for the entire year. We're going to go deep into one book because it's easy to get, try to get done with something. So so for me, it's about slowing down, and really unpacking the thing and learning something to do some deep work. Okay. Is it one book over and over and like, are you going to read it multiple times or you're just going to read it really slowly? Slowly. And I'm, I'm going to try to get them to, we're only reading one chapter a month and then we're going to talk about it. And, and then my purpose is trying to slow people down to really digest the material and think about, you know, in the book of five rings, which was, I think his name was Musashi, Miyamoto Musashi. He was a, he was a swordsman back in feudal Japan. But there's a line in that book, the book of five rings that says from one thing, no 10,000. And I think that if we can find those meta concepts that apply mm-hmm. to a lot of different things, then we're, we're actually learning a lot more by learning a lot less. It's interesting. I'm on a similar path. I'm not going with the hundred year rule, but I'm trying to find the best books in particular topics and read them regularly. Mm. So yeah. I, I was inspired last year by one of my guests. I read uh, how to win friends and influence people in January mm. every, every year. <laughs> That's I mean, awesome. Most leadership books tend to boil down to repeating <laughs> how to win friends and influence people on some <laughs> level. And so I figured I might as well go back to the source. I have, when it comes to certain topics, I usually go back like philosophy, theology, if it survived for over a hundred years, it's probably worth reading. Whereas most of the things today may not make it for another 50 years. So right. They might be interesting or find a few things, but it's better to read the stuff that's been around for a while and lasted. So I love it. That's a great idea. Thanks again for listening to the show, everyone. If you don't know already, please head over to BeBetterTomorrow.com and subscribe to the show so that you can catch every episode that comes out. Look for ways to be improving all the time. If you've got questions or comments for me, questions you want me to answer on an upcoming show, you can find my email over there as well, but you can also send it to Jason at BeBetterTomorrow.com. That way, I can make sure I'm answering the questions that you're actually asking, because this show is all about helping you be better tomorrow. The music that you're hearing right now is by Kevin McLeod of Income Tech, released under Creative Commons licensing, as is this show. So anything that you decide to do with the show can be done as long as you give me credit, and it's not for profit. With all that, I'd like to say thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.